I came to realize that there was a psalm that over the years has spoken to my own heart in times of, of pain and, and struggle and despair. And I'm not talking about my own here in this particular sense, but realizing that there are so many people, even in the church today, that struggle with depression, that struggle with fear, that struggle with the pressures of life. Now, some of us would probably say, well, you know, they shouldn't struggle. I mean, let's get over it. Let's get to the Word of God. The Word of God tells us, you know, you need to, you need to really trust the Lord. Well, yeah, we know that. But how many of us still go through those times? And we do. I don't care how many years you've been a believer in Jesus Christ. There's still that struggle. Do you know why? Because you're human and you're in flesh. And the enemy will work on those things to keep you in that state of unbelief. So I'd like to have you turn with me to Psalm 77. I've entitled this particular message, Experiencing a Dark Night of the Soul. As we look at the words of the psalmist Asaph, a psalmist who would have been a contemporary of Jeremiah and would have known some of the struggles of his own people, both Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, both of Israel and of Judah, in falling into sins so much that they now would have to face the judgments that God would allow through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And in Psalm 77, let's read the first 10 verses and then we'll look more deeply into the rest of the psalm. It says, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear to me, unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah, which by the way that word, and you'll see it a few times in this, in this psalm, is a word that refers to meditation, a musical interlude by which you are to concentrate on, on that thought, on the th previous thought. And then he goes on and he says, Thou holdest mine eyes waking. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with my own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? 
Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Think about that for just a moment. Selah. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years, the right hand of the Most High. Excuse me. It's been said that by certain mental health experts, and I'm not here to promote, men, you know, some of the psycho, or psychologists and psychiatrists and psychos, but nonetheless, there's something to think about. Certain of them have said that depression is, and I quote, introverted anger experienced as grief. And when it comes, man will retreat and withdraw into themselves. And one response out of many, and there are many, but one response out of many is to say, God must hate me. God must hate me. Intimacy with God, if there happens to be any at all, because only God knows the heart of every person. But if there is intimacy at all with God, is replaced by self-hatred. And what we must be well aware of is that the enemy of our souls will always be there to take advantage of that particular situation. Whatever the case may be. Whatever it is that brings you to that place where you lose intimacy with God and begin to look so much inward that you hate yourself. Not to mention that you'll hate God. You know, as we look around the world today with the the many event-filled reasons for being depressed, I mean, let's Let's face it, I mean, you know, looking at the news nowadays, there's no good thing to say. There's a good thing happening in this world. The United States of America is in an uncivil civil war. Terrorism abounds each and every place where people are trying to say, well, we're trying to figure out if this is terrorism or not. When everybody knows it is, right? And not to mention just the way that the enemy has confounded people so much that he gets them to get away from the things that pertain to God and to Christ and to all the good things and the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah that says men will call evil good and good evil. That's going on almost with every breath that some people take. So with those many event-filled reasons for being depressed and the many excuses for remaining depressed, we may wonder, how can anyone cope? How can anyone cope today with what is going on? The shootings that are taking place by young people. All of that was very rare in certain of our generations that are represented here today. But now, 
It's, it's, it's becoming rampant. This is the enemy getting into the minds and hearts of our young people because we've taken God out of the schools. Because we're taking God out of the society. You know, it's believed that, that Psalm 77 is a, a companion to Psalm 74, a psalm that lamented Jerusalem's destruction and the captivity of Israel. Both, both Psalms, 74 and 77, deal with the apparent rejection of God's people, yet both look for renewed hope by looking back to God's deliverance in the Exodus. Here at the beginning of Psalm 77, Asaph, the psalmist, confesses his disappointment and despair at what he sees, but, but he also moves toward confidence in the Lord God himself in caring for his people. Though this psalm may have a national character to it, it reveals the personal anguish of one who cared for his people deeply. And by the way, you might ask, how could someone who was called by God to be a worship leader, a psalmist, like Asaph was, how could he fall into this? Well, ask that same question about David. Ask that same question about Moses. Ask that same question about Peter. As we begin the psalm in verse 1, it begins with a glimmer of hope, actually. The hope is in the very first verse. Notice what we, what we read in, in, in Asaph's words. He said, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In other words, he acknowledges the fact that God is hearing him. That's hope. Asaph confesses his very vocal prayers unto the Lord using the Hebrew word sa'ak, a, a loud cry or she, a, a shriek, you know. It's usually used as a proclamation, a cry to people. Jesus used it all the time. We went through a number of places in the Gospel of John where Jesus cried out to the people with a very loud cry. But here, Asaph is shrieking out to God over the things that are happening to his people. But the glimmer of hope comes from the fact that he was confident in the Lord giving ear to his cries. Now my question to you all tonight is how confident are we that the Lord truly listens when we come to him with a confident heart in him? Because it makes me wonder how often people pray without really trusting or if they pray at all. And I'm not here to judge a person's prayer life. But too many times I ask somebody, you know, have you been praying about a certain situation that you're going through? Oh, I've been praying all the time. And yet you're standing there talking to me as if you don't trust the Lord. That gives me great concern. At least with Asaph, we see that he actually says, hey, I cried to God and he heard my voice. 
He heard my cry. He gave ear unto me. He listened. That doesn't say everything just about God. It says something about Asaph too, who trusted the Lord enough to know that he would listen. You know, it was, it was Isaiah, I believe, in, in, in Isaiah 59 that, that he says, you know, God's ear is not so heavy that he doesn't hear or deaf that he doesn't hear, but, but our sin keeps us from his hearing us. So Asaph is, is saying, I, I prayed unto God, I cried out to him and he, and he gave ear to me. He listened. This is the kind of confidence that we need, that we truly trust in the Lord when we face these sorts of trials, these kinds of things that weigh heavy on us for whatever reason. We don't get up expecting bad things to happen, but when they do happen, what's the first thing that we do? What's the first thing that we should be ready for? Sometimes we reveal our hearts by the things that we say. Oh my God, something's happened. Oh, I can't believe this, I can't believe, you know. Well, okay, you're gonna to have to believe in something. Maybe the best thing is to believe that God is there to hear your cry in the midst of the trouble that you just found yourself facing. Because you could face it tonight or you can face it tomorrow. And then he goes on in verses two and three and he says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Well, I think we should bronze that in our hearts, you know. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. You know what's sad? Let me tell you something that was sad. I'm gonna be very revealing tonight. What is sad is when somebody says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the pastor of the church. In the day of my trouble, I was looking for some counselor, somebody, some number. I remember a number. I need to call that number. Do you see what the, what the problem is with that? In comparison to this person who says, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. And not only did he seek the Lord, and he's not talking about seeking the Lord with, with, with uh, uh, hopelessness. He also reveals how deep he seeks the Lord because he says, my sore ran in the night and ceased not. It's interesting that the word sore here is the Greek, uh, I'm sorry, the Hebrew word yad. Yad means hand. And some of your translations say that he stretched out his hands. The word yad can also mean a, a hand that is sore and stretching out. It's also a place. Some of you may be familiar with the, with the term Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is the memorial to the Holocaust in Israel, in Jerusalem. Yad Vashem means the hand and the name. In fact, it comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 5. 
where it talks about the memorial and a name. But here he says, my sore ran in the night and ceased not. It's, it's a pretty broad term. So it's how it's used in the context here. And he says, my soul refused to be comforted. And you can kind of look at that particular situation by him crying out to God and not giving up in crying out to the Lord. I refuse to be comforted. In other words, well, all right, I laid everything down. I know some people who pray that way. I just, ah, put it in there. Ah, it's in God's hands now. No, he didn't give up. He didn't give up praying for his people. But notice what he goes on to say. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God, verse 3. I remembered God, but notice this. I remembered God and was troubled. <laughs> I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Think about that for a little while. Selah. I remembered God and was troubled. Consider how personal then that Asaph has taken the circumstances falling upon his own people. How similar a reaction this was to Daniel and Nehemiah, both who prayed for their people, identifying themselves in the sins of the people. Daniel, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, where he says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and made confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Notice verse 5, we have sinned. He doesn't say they have sinned. He says we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened, neither have we listened intently unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Dan Daniel included himself in the burden Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1, very early on in that, in that book. Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 7, it says, And it came to pass when I heard these words, the fact that the walls of Jerusalem were down, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we, notice, not they, but we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant, Moses. Notice that Asaph said, in the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My sore hand ran in the night. My soul refused to be comforted. This was, was desperate pleading before the Lord with no answer in sight. In effect, if, if you will, in effect, what, 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 what Asaph was saying was, is God blind as well as deaf? Because his prayer continued, but his whole self was utterly consumed with anguish. But the first step, 
the first step toward his healing is found in verse 3. Asaph confesses he's a broken man. Asaph confesses he's a broken man. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. May I ask you a question? What does this say about the false prophets of the health, wealth, prosperity, happiness, positive confession doctrine? What does it say about that? I heard this week of one particular televangelist that I think was asking for something like $54 million so he could buy himself a jet. Am I pretty close to what that was all about? I'd like a $54 million jet too. No, not really. You got to pay for the maintenance. Gee, got to pay for the fuel. What am I going to do with that? What is all that about? Well, I'm, I, don't, I don't want to get away from where I'm going here. But what does all of this say? What, what, what Asaph himself was going through, what was he going through? The anguish of the, of, the, of the judgment that was coming upon his own people. What does it say? All this stuff about, you know, let's just be happy, you know, let's just, just be smiling and, you know, God just wants to bless you, just bless you and bless you and bless you. Really? I want you to consider the words of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, at this time when he's writing to the church in Philippi, Paul is in prison. Consider the words to the church in Philippi that was itself in the midst of the storms of persecution. And Paul writes this in Philippians 1, verse 27 and following. He says to them, only let your conversation, which is your conduct, let your conduct be as it becometh the gospel, the good news of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel, not for what you can line your pockets with, for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an, evidence, uh, an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Stand fast in the salvation that comes from God through Christ. In other words, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ. And look at this, verse 29 is a key verse here. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Folks, that's the word of God. You know, if these weirdos want to, you know, want to say anything, they should say, well, that's a negative confession. No, it's reality. Look at the church today in the midst of this world. 
I talked to you earlier about all of the problems going on in the world and what, what is the, church, the true church? I'm not talking about just people who go to church. The true church of Jesus Christ, what are we facing today? I mean, there are people on, in our own country today who are, are waiting for the opportunity to block the church from even saying Christ's name. They're already doing it in California. Or at least they're trying to get it on the books over there. I know of some young people that were arrested because they were passing out tracks outside of uh, DMV in uh, uh, somewhere in California to people who were in line going in for their their uh, automobile licenses or their driver's licenses. That's the way it is. Not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. So I'm in prison for the gospel, Paul was saying. By verse 4, going back to Asaph, by verse 4, we begin to detect a mood swing, if you will, in the psalmist. It's, it's slight, so don't think it's like right there. But notice in verse 4, he says, Thou holdest mine eyes waking. <laughs> you know what that means? He says, God, you're holding my eyelids open so I can stay awake. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. First of all, he quits complaining. First thing we learn here about his mood swing. He quits complaining as the Lord is holding open his eyelids. He begins to remember the past joys of the Lord's grace and mercies upon his people. And then his spirit makes this diligent search to understand God's ways. Now, folks, I can tell you right now, God's ways, the scripture tells us, God's ways are past finding out. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand something about God's ways because we have his word to show us what his ways are. He made diligent search to understand God's ways. How often do we seek to understand God's ways even though his ways are oftentimes past finding out? One reason why we should seek to know his ways, search the scriptures, why we should, so that we know that we are in track with where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live and how he wants us to be a witness for him. He's made that clear in his word. Even still, God is so awesome that we can't understand him fully until when? Even when we get to heaven, we're not going to know everything but we're gonna know as much as we need to.
And so Asaph now takes steps. What he's doing is taking steps to turning from self to God. That's the next thing we need to do is, is, is take the steps to turn from ourself to God, from taking the focus off of ourself and putting it upon the Lord in the midst of whatever trial or circumstance or situation we're dealing with. So they begin with, uh, those steps begin with answering these questions that I'm going to pose to you, which come right out of verses seven through nine, and answering those questions with the emphatic no, no, no. Notice verse seven, will the Lord cast off forever? No. And will he be favorable no more? No. Is his mercy clean gone forever? No. Does his promise fail forevermore? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No. Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? No. Selah. Meditate on that for a while. So, in other words, is rejection permanent? No. Will God no longer be favorable to his people? No. Has God's mercy ceased permanently? No. Has God's promise failed forevermore? No. Has God forgotten what it is to be gracious? Of course not. See, you thought I was going to say no. Has God shut up his most tender mercies in anger? No, N-O, no. Since there's so much talk about Russia nowadays, yet. No, no. You see, one thing that we must remember about our great and awesome God. You ready? We all need to remember this. His mercy is always greater his mercy is always greater than his wrath. His mercy is always greater than his wrath. And his mercy is much greater than the psalmist's or our sin. His mercy is greater than our sin. Aren't you thankful for that? Take note of what the Lord responded to the prayer of Moses in Numbers chapter 14. As you're turning there, because I want you to see this, the spies had gone into the land, <clears throat> a certain number of spies had gone into the land, and they came back to report to the people. And of course, a certain number of them came back and they said, oh my God, there are giants in the land. We're going to be like grasshoppers to them. <laughs> and then Caleb, one with, with, with Joshua, but Joshua isn't mentioned there, but Caleb is. Caleb comes and he says, hey, listen, man, we can take these guys because we got God on our side. Now can, now, now, can you see the two perspectives here? 
The majority of these guys that went and spied the land, they looked at the giants and they saw how big the giants were. They saw, you know, the fact that they looked like little, you know, peak squeak, uh, pip squeak uh, uh, grasshoppers, you know, that they're going to be stomped upon. And Caleb says, oh man, those are, they're nothing. They're, they are nothing in the sight of God. God is on our side. Our God who brought us here, he'll take care of those pipsqueaks. And they got mad at Caleb. And in effect, what they were saying is, our God isn't that strong. So God says, I'm going to wipe you guys out for your unbelief. But in that, Moses rises up as an intercessor, a type of Christ. And in verse, four, eight, uh, verse 18 of Numbers 14, this is part of the prayer of Moses. He said, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. There's mercy. Keep note. Forgiving iniquity and transgression. And by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. There it is again. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Now he goes on and says a lot of other things, but, but here is responding to what he said about his mercy. He says, according to your word, as you have said about my mercy, that then I have pardoned them. This was not a test on God. This was a test on the heart of Moses. But that's for another time. What we learn here is this this very general but very powerful principle, and that is that our God, our God can be held to all of his promises. Our God can be held to all of his promises, not just some of his promises, all of his promises. Got that? God can be trusted 100%. In every promise he's made. And then remember that our God is indeed a faithful God. In the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah, it comes right after the prophecy of Jeremiah. So following that is the Lamentations of Jeremiah, the weeping, the crying out to God because the destruction that came upon Israel and Jerusalem and Judah. But Jerusalem itself. In the very midst of that whole book of lamentation, that whole book of crying out to God, of, of, of lamenting, of, of mourning, of grieving, are the words of the prophet when he says in verse 19 of chapter 3, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul has them in, still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. In the midst of that pain, there was hope, he says. And he says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Now take note of verse 25. For when we cry out to people instead of God, what are we doing? We're saying that we don't have any hope in God. Well, if you're putting your hope in me, man, it's even worse. <laughs> you need to put your hope in God, in Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Godhead, the, 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 the triune Godhead that has made himself available to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good, notice, it is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And so Asaph's memories now are turning to the God of redemption. Turning to the God of redemption. Look at verses 10 through 15 now. And I said, this is my infirmity, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared that... Uh, thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Any thoughts of redemption must always turn to the right hand of the Most High. The right hand, I've said it time and time again. Who is the right hand of the Most High? It's Jesus. It's Yeshua. It is the Messiah. It is the anointed one. And there's only one Messiah. There's not many messiahs. There's a lot of people who think they're messiah today. They're not messiahs. There's only one messiah, that's Jesus. There's only one anointed who comes through the line of David, and that's Jesus. And David himself was well aware of God's right hand. In Psalm 17, verse 7, he says, Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. That means putting it in the right hand. Who sits at the right hand of the throne of God? Jesus does. Psalm 18, verse 35, Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand has holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Psalm 63, verses 7 and 8, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. All you have to do is look at the right hand of the throne of God and you know who the right hand is. It's Jesus. And in some cases, he's not called the right hand, he's called the right arm. The right arm of God. It's Jesus. And through the rest of this passage, Asaph is affirming the fact that God is wholly other than anyone or anything in his creation. When Asaph says, who is so great a God as our God? Folks, who's a God greater than our God? 
Anyone? Any God? Anything? None. There's only one God, and he's God, and there is no other. And it says that time and time again in the scriptures. Our God who does wonders, our God who redeems his people with his arm, Yeshua, Jesus, is there anyone like him? No, not one. It is now that Asaph considers God's work in history, but especially in the history of his people. You can start in verse 15. Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. That's 14. Verse 15, thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. By the way, let me, let me interject here because I forgot to put these verses in the, in the text. But, but uh, Paul himself acknowledges the fact that Jesus is the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, he says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought or fashioned in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And then he goes on in verse 6 of chapter 2, and he says, and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, where is that? At the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. Okay, but now in Psalm 77, verse 16, notice what he goes on to say. Getting back to that. The waters saw thee, O God. Look at this. The waters saw thee. Yeah, we, we look at water as, as, you know, well, it's something we need, you know, in, in life uh, every day, especially in the summertime here. Got to have ourselves well hydrated. But water's water, right? But water's a creation of God, and it responds to God. Think about that. The water saw thee, O God, the water saw thee. They were afraid, the depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water, the skies sent out a sound, thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder, and by the way, the arrows are probably, probably lightning. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven, the lightnings lightened the world, the earth trembled and shook. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Keep that for just a moment in your thoughts. And then he says in verse 20, Thou leddest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The creation itself is in awe. Now, now pay attention. The creation itself is in awe before the Lord God. The creation. Not just man. The creation is in awe before God. From the creation itself to the flood and to the Red Sea. Because this is what he mentions both in chapter 74. Psalm 74 and Psalm 77. All of creation responds to the presence and the power of the Lord. And may I say, 
sometimes much better than most men who should know that there is a God. Go to Psalm 68, verses 7 through 9. Psalm 68, verse 7 says, O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Go to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigneth. Stop there. Who reigns? The Lord reigns. No one else reigns. Are there kings on the earth today? Yeah. Do they say they reign? Yeah, maybe in their kingdom. Are there presidents and ambassadors and prime ministers? There are all kinds of people out there, but none of them reign. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. There are some isles right now that are responding to the things of the world. Out in the Hawaiian Islands. Think about what's happening there. Everybody says, oh my God, I thought it was paradise. No. It might be a little bit of paradise on earth, but the, there's, there's only one paradise. That's where God is. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Even the Apostle Paul makes some reference to this in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25, when he says, For we know, and notice again what he says, for we know. This is not just speculation. This is not conjecture. This is saying, I know, we know, that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. One simple reason why is because of the sin of man, brought about by the sin of Lucifer. Satan, the devil, the dragon. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also. So he says, not only creation, but even us, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You know what he's saying? By the way, and I'm going to do a study on this one of these days very shortly, but this is talking about the rapture of the church. This is how we should be before the coming of the Lord for us. 
Jesus said it to his disciples before he went to the cross. Paul said it to us based upon what Jesus said in John 14. He said it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The very redemption of the body. We should be groaning within ourselves, waiting for that redemption, waiting for that adoption, I should say, to the redemption, or to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. That again is, some, is, is, uh, is evidence that, that he's speaking of something that none of us have seen and none of us will see until that very moment when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him to be with the Lord in the air and, and forever to be with him. For what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? If you see it, why are you hoping for it? That's the problem sometimes in this world. We see things in the world and we say, we don't want that. Well, I know I'm waiting for the Lord, but you know, but, but it'd be nice be, between, between now and the time he comes, I, I want that. <laughs> well, you don't. Just be very thankful for what God has given you that you need. And that's every day he gives us what we need. But there's nothing we're going to take with us when he comes. So what we're hoping for is not something that we see. It's something that is going to take place in an instant, the twinkling of an eye. But notice verse 25, but if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Remember Reed R. O'Reilly and Mash? Wait for it. Nobody heard the helicopters except him. Wait for it. Jesus is coming. That's why we're groaning. I'll tell you right now, my body's groaning. <laughs> I'm getting older every moment, every moment here. It groans. Can't wait. So when it comes right down to it, as our text in Psalm 77 indicates, the Lord is revealed. Listen carefully. The Lord is revealed in the upheaval. He's revealed in the upheaval. The text says, thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven. The lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. Who is in the midst of every upheaval known and caused by man? Who? You know, one of the statements that I, I never like to hear, although there's some truth to it, there's some truth to it, but not full truth. It's that little statement, uh, the little saying that says, the devil is in the details. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, the devil is in the details. The greater truth is, God is in every detail. Because the devil can't be anywhere that God doesn't let him be. That's how much he reigns. You know, we oftentimes wonder is, uh, what we oftentimes wonder is we ourselves can, can find or detect the footprints of God. Where is God? We're the fingerprints of God. And as our text reminds us, thy footsteps are not known. 
And while we know that God in many ways is unsearchable, there is a time and there is a place and there is a person when God's footprints are clearly seen. And God's footprints are clearly seen in the incarnation in Jesus Christ. His footprints are clearly seen. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his kingdom there will be no end. God's footprints are clearly seen on the roads to Samaria and to the Galilee and in the streets of Jerusalem. And in Nazareth, Nazareth and Cana. In the mud of the Jordan, the footprints of God are clearly seen. The Logos became flesh. John 1.14, we'll close with this. And the Word, the Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love the very fact that in verse 20 of Psalm 77, it says, Thou lettest thy people like a flock. Yes, by the hand of Moses and Aaron, who were actually the under shepherds. But there's only one true shepherd. And Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep. And they know me. And if we know the shepherd, then he is the one that we as sheep must come to in our times of desperation in our times of despair, in our times of battling certain depressions, in our times of confusion. God has given us his love. God has given us his mercy. God has given us his grace and his truth, and everything is in Jesus. He's the answer to every question we have. 
And so when we consider any dark night of the soul which we may have in our lifetime, just remember, we have a God who cares. There's an old hymn, and I wish I remember all the words, but its title is, Does Jesus Care? My only response to that question is yes, he does. And he showed us how much he cared when he died on the cross for you and for me. Don't stay in despair. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus.